Good morning, everyone. Um, so this morning, I want to um, continue our discussion through these online uh, Sunday talks um, of taking care of our practice in the midst of uh, COVID-19 and our, our changed society. Um, and, you know, and dealing with this is something we are uh, sharing with, you know, billions of other people on a global scale, while how it's actually impacting us can vary tremendously, um, you know, depending on our, you know, who we are, our communities, our region, um, how it's impacting family, friends, and so on. Um, as a particular focus for this morning, I want to look at uh, Mara um, and um, Mara and to approach the story of Mara as a kind of koan and inquiring into Mara as a way of inqu inquiring into our grasping, our fear, our distress, um, how we don't feel okay. And so how does a practice of awakening work with our varied and dynamic patterns of grasping and the predicaments of these um, strange and uncertain times? So uh, Mara is a, a being we encounter in, uh, especially in stories of the Buddha's awakening. So in these stories, um, Shakyamuni, has uh, sat down under the Bodhi tree, uh, determined to realize awakening. Um, sometimes they say the place where Shakyamuni has sat down is the exact center of the Jambudvipa continent, or we could say basically it's the center of the world, the human world. And he's sitting down with this deep resolve and this comes to the attention of Mara. And Mara is a deva, a god or a deity. And um, Mara sometimes said to be the, the lord of the highest uh, heavenly realm or celestial realm in the world of desire, in the Kamadhatu. And so Mara feels this sense of dominion over this entire realm, which includes humans. And he sees Shakyamuni with this resolve for liberation, and he's like, I need to go take care of that. So he comes to interrupt Shakyamuni Zazen. So this is this is the main koan of, of Mara, um, is Mara's attempts to interrupt Shakyamuni Zazen. And there's many different versions of this in different narratives of the Buddha's life. Um, but uh, one approach, there's Mara makes uh, three attempts. So first, Mara sends armies of demons to inspire fear. Sometimes it said this, this is nine storms of wind, rain, rocks, weapons, embers, ashes, sand, mud, and darkness. So a huge assault. And this fails to move Shakyamuni. Sometimes... Uh, in the iconography, 
there's um depiction of arrows and other things being slung at the Buddha, and the Buddha's sitting peacefully, and right before they get to the Buddha, they turn into flowers. Uh, second, um, second attempt uh, to interrupt Shakyamuni Zazen is um, Mara's um, daughters, sometimes identified as thirst, discontent, and attachment. And they come forth and try to distract Shakyamuni. And here too, he remains um, still and upright. And so then third, uh, Mara himself comes forth and tries to unseat the Buddha. And he said he questions the right of Shakyamuni to sit on this seat in the middle of the world um, and this seat of awakening. And Mara says, it's I, I should be the one sitting there. Um, and uh, I am the, I am actually, after all the Lord of Kamadatu. Um, and in response, uh, Shakyamuni reaches down and touches the earth. Um, uh, calling on the earth goddess as a witness to his virtue, to, that he belongs on this seat. And the earth bears witness, and the ground trembles, and Mara leaves, um, defeated and unable to unseat Shakyamuni. And so, you know, when we hear this story, we can wonder, um, well, what, what actually is Mara? And does Mara come to visit us in Zazen? How does Mara appear? Uh, what are the ways Mara tries to um, interrupt our practice and unseat us? And so in this story, uh, Mara's a deva, a deity, a god, an external being and um, and this is actually there's in the teachings there's actually multiple ways that Mara appears. And so this is sometimes referred to as the the Deva Putra Mara, the Mara who's um, born a Deva. And um, Mara, this Mara is sometimes referred to as the evil one. And there's many different iconography iconogra iconographical presentations of Mara but sometimes riding an elephant, sometimes with blue skin, sometimes with two arms, sometimes with six arms. And Mara appears as this force um, trying to disrupt awakening and liberation and a force external to us, or we could say external to our volition, to our conscious effort. And there's these other forms of Mara um, that appear in the early teachings. Uh, there's a Klesha Mara. So this is Mara as the afflictions of mind, the afflictions which drive suffering, greed, hate, and delusion. Or we could also just say most basically grasping. Another form of Mara is Marana Mara, which is Mara identified as death. And yet another form of Mara is Skanda Mara, which is basically Mara is the whole world, our whole conditioned life, uh, us and everything we experience. It's all subject to impermanence or death. 
Marana Mara. It's all under the sway of Mara as the afflictions, Klesha Mara. And so it's all, the whole world is involved in this process of suffering. So Mara's samsara. So Mara has this kind of um, complexity or ambivalence in, in the teachings. Um, and, um, you know, we have a, a kind of a psychological and or moral Mara as mental afflictions, an existential Mara as death, <clears throat> an all-pervading or maybe ontological Mara as the world, as all-conditioned things, and a cosmological or and personalized Mara as this external deity. And we might want to um, simplify some of this complexity. And, and this, is, this is also reflected in the tradition. And so one way to do this is say, well, basically the psychological Mara is, like, is real. And the other Maras are kind of poetry. You know, they're, they're, like, they're projections, dramatizations, metaphorical extensions or, or you know, myth. Um, but I'd like to offer that, um, that we could embrace these different presentations of Mara as having a kind of um, versatility and, um, and that there's a vitality and not privileging one over the others. And, and, and that we maybe not make Mara flat and um, less alive and less powerful and less disruptive. And maybe wanting to make Mara small could be could be the work of Mara. And you know the idea that um, that Mara and you know that this this force of disruption is totally psychological and that it's all here. Um, I think I think we could look at that as a kind of myth. It's a kind of myth that you know goes along with other myths that look at myths as myths. <laughs> like faith and rationality and the scientific method is being suitable for encountering, you know, matters of the heart. Um, you know, so I think we can see like Mara as a totally external deity is kind of a myth. But it's also, it's kind of a myth to feel that like this isolated individual has a act microcosm of the whole process of suffering and the whole process of awakening. Um, I think most basically we can say Mara is the gesture of uh, grasping. So the Buddha taught, it makes no difference what you grasp when you grasp, Mara stands beside you. And then also Mara has this particular manifestation of grasping that arises as we find the seed of liberation. And, um, and you know, grasping is something we have internalized. It's something we do, um, but, it's, but it's not self-created. It arose through relationality. And so it's the activity of the self, but its roots are beyond the self. 
our grasping and our delusion are not simply our doing. Um, they are informed by our genetics, our biology, our nurturance, family and culture, and you know many lineages uh, reaching back, you know, beyond our apprehension. So I, I want I'm kind of interested in looking at Mara as an intertwining of these um, the psychological and existential and cosmological and this kind of intertwining or traversing inner and outer um, is a way to approach Mara a way to approach our grasping and the modalities of Mara in this story. Um, So Mara, we can look at Mara as a force of spiritual stasis or limiting growth, limiting liberation, uh, limiting love. And how this force manifests is or can be uh, vigorous and multifarious and dynamic. So it can, and it can have these Sometimes it can feel psychological. Sometimes it might also feel cosmological or it might feel existential or it might feel like uh, the world. So we could, we could feel it in our own dispositions, but we could also feel it as death. We could feel it as a force beyond our control. We could feel it as a God or a devil or a demon or a world leader, or a ghost, or an irresistible temptation. Um, you know, one of the most common ways maybe to encounter Mara is a voice in our head. And still, you know, there we can wonder, you know, whose voice is that? Whose voice is this? You know, where is this coming from? So we have, we have kind of a more conceptual analytical approach, this psychological approach, but we also have approaches, you know, more in, uh, grounded in story and allegory and poetry and image and myth. And we don't need to see those as mutually exclusive and we can affirm both, affirm the analytical and uh, the imaginative and the creative, the dream life. Um, and uh, when we look at Mara in the context of this story, um, Mara is engaged in a dynamic with the seed of awakening. And so another part of this koan is like, what is this seat? What is the seat of awakening? Uh, the bodhimanda. Uh, sometimes we say uh, anywhere we sit zazen is the bodhimanda, is the seat of awakening. And I've heard at least that this is part of the reason why, you know, we might bow to our seat. Even if we're sitting by ourselves, we can bow to our seat as the site of awakening. Honoring that, you know, this place is um, our place, just like the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree. And finding our place is finding our center of the world. And this, this center 
is uh, our life right here as the nexus of myriad unfathomable causes and conditions meeting here on our, as our life. And it, it includes the history of the whole universe right here. It also includes our unique uh, particular history. And I, I feel like I think of this as this of awakening, um, the seat of connection, uh, the seat of agency and action, uh, the seat of love and compassion, the seat of just uh, being ourself, just completely being this person, uh, the seat of manifesting our awakened nature. And I feel like when we, when we um, you know, feel out this seat, that just like Mara, our seat intertwines psychological, existential, cosmological, mythological dimensions of our being. So Mara has these uh, three attempts to um, unseat Shakyamuni. These are th and three modalities of Mara or you know, three ways Mara works, three ways Mara operates, three ways grasping works, um, three ways death works, three ways the world works. They're modalities of stasis, of being stuck or the ways we get knocked off our seat, challenges to awakening, ways we don't fully meet our lives. And, you know, and we're kind of, or we're gonna look at these as three for today, but, you know, but Mara or grasping um, defies this, this enumeration or classification, grasping is dynamic. And so it's modalities twist and turn together. And so actually you can't really separate these or they, they're not, they don't necessarily come one, two, three. They can all come at once. And these are fields of awakened inquiry. How do we find the seed of awakening and connection and love as Mara approaches and tries to unseat us? How do the particular conditions of our life interface with the workings of Mara? And, you know, and particularly in these times. Uh, so first Mara sends uh, armies of demons. Um, so we may feel attacked. We may feel assaulted or assailed. And, um, in many different ways. We may feel attacked through a voice of judgment, a rebuke or rejection, uh, through physical or emotional pain, uh, through a pandemic. This, we may feel attacked by the face of an enemy or at times the face of a friend or a loved one. We may feel attacked by people in power or by policies, by terminal illness, uh, the inevitability of death, economic stress, and many other forms. We can meet the face of Mara. 
And so part of what's happening here is how do we get unseated by fear? It's it's seems to be hard for people to sit in the fullness of fear. It seems actually for a lot of people, it's hard to sit with even a thin sliver of fear. And so we, it's actually pretty common to completely avoid or deny our fear, to, to find ways to just turn away from it altogether. And basically, you know, if you, an honest report is, I'm not afraid. I don't have fear right now. But, but there is fear. And when we turn away from our fear, we turn away from our seat, finding our place, finding the seat of awakening. In these last few weeks, I've, I've, um, I go out shopping for food. And those are times that I really, I can notice fear. I can notice fear in myself and I can see fear basically all around me. And we can learn to feel our fear and we can learn to be fully okay uh, with our fear, to welcome fear. And um, I think, you know, we, we, feel into where is the fear manifesting in our bodies. And we attune to the quality and the texture of how fear is manifesting. And we might notice if our experience of fear has a shape and how, what, and what's giving it that shape. Um, sometimes it has a shape because it's being, um, being impacted by our attempts to manage or minimize or confine our fear. So we also, we feel all around our fear. And again, it's just awareness. We just, we trust in the maturing illumination of awareness. Um, Another response to feeling attacked is to fight back. And we can actively fight or resist what is happening. Um, we can get angry. And um, this anger can um, cover our fear or vulnerability. And this opens into the whole human realm of uh, domination, controlling through force, you know, violence. Do you think this email is getting bad? If 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 it's not coming through, okay, maybe um leave a chat, leave a message in the chat, or you can wave. But we're worried that the signal is not coming through. No, not see. Oh no, there's someone waving. Some people thumbs up. <laughs> okay, okay, I think I got that. Okay. Um, Mara wants us to fight Mara or resisting Mara uh, makes Mara stronger. Resisting our fear and our pain and anxiety gives power to our fear, pain and anxiety. 
Mara's happy for us to try and judge our way into being good or judge our way into deep practice. Or, you know, to think that this shouldn't be happening. So how then do we practice with the forces that oppose practice? Um, so the Buddha does not fight the demon armies. With uh, courage and gentleness and clarity, uh, the Buddha sits still and upright. And these, you know, these arrows are transmuted into flowers. So when we fully welcome them, fear, anger, trying to control what's happening and so on, these turn into flowers. And these fear and anger flowers are not the absence of fear and anger, but how fear and anger open in uh, non-grasping and become part of the vital fullness of, of being ourself. So these, you know, in these, in these depictions, fear and anger and these, these, this attack adorn the seed of awakening. They form a kind of halo around the Buddha. There's these, this kind of this nice circle of flowers, and then coming out of the circles, you can uh, the flowers. You can still see the the arrows, like the light of awakening. So second uh, is Mara's daughters' thirst, discontent, and attachment, um, and this can kind of feel like the opposite of being attacked. So rather than an assault, Mara's alluring us. Um, but in the essential, you know, effort to draw us away from our seat, it's intertwined with the first and in a way it's more subtle. So it's not trying to use force, but temptation and persuasion, some attractive alternative. And, um, the images here are typically Mars, three daughters dancing around the Buddha. Um, sometimes we also hear that Mara has three sons. Confusion, pleasure, and pride. So I kind of want to just maybe talk about the progeny of Mara. <laughs> the children, offshoots, or elaborations of grasping, uh, dancing all around, or dancing all inside. Um, I associate this modality of Mara with, um, well, basically it could be anything we want, um, whether we're proud of it or not, um, but, you know, the allure of pleasure, consumption, possession, ownership, status, recognition, fame, wealth, power, comfort. Um, and it can manifest as a kind of escapism, uh, distraction, restlessness, or um, obsession, intoxication, addiction. And, you know, if the first attack was kind of in some way about death, this is about clinging to life, continuity, legacy, property, 
heirs. Um, and you know, pleasure and comfort are not bad, but when they when they appear as a face of Mara, when there's grasping, um, pleasure or comfort can be a force that draws us away from our lives. Mara wants us to get lost, to get lost in fantasy, totally involved and forget the place where we are, forget the seat of awakening, the seat of connection. Mara wants us to grasp and pursue fulfillment outside of our life right here. And if, and if in our effort to practice, we try to turn away from Mara's daughters and Mara's progeny and seek escape uh, from that, that also makes Mara happy. So um, resistance still makes Mara stronger. So Buddha is still an intimate in the middle of these dancing offspring of grasping, not touching, not turning away. So awakening meets the children of Mara without grasping, without trying to possess or escape, without trying to become someone else. Mara wants us to seek freedom from the world uh, rather than the freedom in the world, freedom life rather than freedom in our life. And when we project this kind of escapism onto practice, it becomes um, spiritual bypassing. We use the teachings and the practice as modalities of escape. Um, in these times, we might see this modality of Mara uh, in a kind of in turning towards comfort, or we might notice, you know, um, some grasping to a certain solace and safety in our individual safety. Um, I also feel that, like, as a modality of um, possession and ownership that Mara kind of, Mara extends, this modality extends to uh, appropriation and colonization and privilege. And this is one of the reasons why I wanna look at Mara in kind of relational terms, rather than just something simply in, internal or external. And so looking practices and including, you know, the systems we live in, these cultural systems, how they work, how, how our upbringing in these systems has shaped us. And James Baldwin says, history is literally present in all that we do. You know, so inquiring into, um, you know, forms of bias and prejudice that are often subtle and unconscious, but they condition our perception, our experience, our interactions and our participation in the structures of this society. So systemic Mara. And you know, in, in this time we can we see um, certain forms of privilege are still functioning, functioning quite strongly. 
in, especially in who dies in this country. So, you know, we can stay awake to our privilege. The third, or finally, uh, Mara moves from trying to unseat the Buddha through force, or and then or through distraction, to um, employing you could say deception and confusion. Um, so Mara says Shakyamuni is not worthy to sit on the seat of awakening, and um, this is more subtle, but it's uh, can be very powerful. So Mara is leading us, you know, from fighting suffering or resisting to escaping, basically to identifying the suffering. Um, and this can come as words in our head, words from another person, assumptions and expectations of self and others, feelings and emotions. Can include any conclude any sense that we're not worthy. Any sense, the sense we don't belong or the sense we're not uh, okay or not um, completely okay. And uh, the more deeply uh, we relax, the more deeply, deeply we take this seat of awakening, these voices can arise and, and visit us in new and more powerful ways. And so in response to these, to this, uh, these words of Mara, the Buddha touches the earth and the earth shakes in affirmation. The earth shakes with our belonging. The place where we are um, this, in this moment, this is, a, this is a seat of belonging. So again, the Buddha does not fight or argue with Mara, and the Buddha does not try to escape. And I feel like this touching the earth, and this is something we also see a lot, there's a lot of images of the Buddha touching the earth, the right hand. Um, uh, I see here like an expression of the intimate relationship of, of stillness and the stillness of intimate relationship. So touching the earth is like a, an expression of zazen. Zazen is touching the body, touching the heart-mind, touching our feelings, touching our lives. And being fully okay with being this person. And if we don't feel okay with being this person, Noticing that and being okay with that. Uh, wherever we sit is the Bodhimanda, the seat of awakening. Um, Keizan, a key uh, Soto Zen ancestor, taught every single person without exception is a vessel of the way. Uh, some of us have been sitting together um, 
sitting zazen together on Zoom, and actually, you know, many of you came a little bit early today, and we sat zazen. And in some ways, it's kind of a funny thing to do to sit zazen together in this way, quote together. I think we all miss the aliveness of actually being together, body to body, mind to mind, heart to heart, true nature to true nature. And still, there's this, this limited form of connection with computers and phones and devices. Um, provides, can provide a kind of a big support. So, you know, what helps us feel connected? Um, what helps us find the seed of awakening, which is also the seed of connection? the seat of total relationality. And so even if we're not in the same room, um, we share a moment together. And I feel there's something really important um, in the meaning and weight of being in this moment together. And I, I feel like it's connected to like, why, people aren't interested in watching old sports or reading old news. When we share in this moment, we can experience a sense of genuine interplay. And so connection is totally intimate with agency and participation, understanding how our life matters. And we need that uh, reflected. So even sitting quietly together, not really using our speakers and microphones, not even necessarily looking at our screens, there is some connection and there's some reflection there, uh, some actualization of our interplay in this moment because when we're sitting, we are, we're not shutting down, we're opening up. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, we are an irreplaceable part of the universe. And um, it's important for our irreplaceability to um, be reflected. It's nourishing and organizing, and it, and it, but it's not doesn't necessarily come as somebody saying like you're irreplaceable. It can come as you're you know sitting together with you know computers. So I feel like touching the earth can also be connecting through Zoom, and our sitting together is a collective affirmation of every single person without exception, is a vessel of the way. So we might hear echoes of this modality of Mara as, um, you know, if we're sheltering in place, and then there's these voices questioning whether we should be staying at home. Um, we may encounter the face of Mara and the deep uncertainty we are collectively facing. You know, doubt and uncertainty have great potential to unseat us. 
certainty can also unseat us. Uh, I feel one of the challenges of this time is that we have this intense uncertainty. You don't know what the next few months or even the next few years look like. Um, and we're faced with an overload of information, competing ideas, recommendations, rumors, reports, data, interpretations of data, predictions, and so on. How do we find our way through all of this? And you know, this information can be really powerful. Some of it can send us into a panic. Some of us can give us a false sense of security. Some can kind of raise our spirits and give us hope. Some can uh, leave us with despair. And so this is a this is a field of practice. the self and inquiring into how we're impacted by information and you know Mara is all around us and there's this overload of information and um, saw the phrase there's also a pandemic of misinformation and uh, we can we can attend to how we're manipulated Uh, misinformation can acquire a quality of seeming true uh, in various ways. One of those ways is just repetition. Just, just through repeated exposure, things seem more true. You know, it, it could basically be anything. And, um, you know, social media is now a big part of information distribution. And social media, it doesn't tend to incentivize truth, but what you know, what gets attention. So touching the earth in the midst of all this information, staying in touch with ourselves, touching the earth and connecting with others, uh, touching the earth and you know, finding a good balanced reliable information and touching the earth can also be um, not holding to any information uh, or belief uh, too rigidly as grasping. Um, another thing I came across is uh, studies have found that um, pandemics impact how our minds work on a kind of basic uh, instinctual level. And that you know, fear of contagion uh, can lead us to become more harsh and judgmental and more biased uh, against difference and non-conformity. And so this could be a factor you know, in expressions of uh, xenophobia and racism and ableism. When we feel threatened by an infection, um, we unconsciously project uh, onto any observable difference and association with the virus. It's kind of like an overcompensation to try and keep ourselves safe. Again, a basic unconscious instinctual level. And so we develop a heightened sense of uh, distrust and suspicion, fear of nonconformity. 
and this can you know, manifest through prejudice and discrimination. So here too, we can uh, touch the earth, find our seat and find the seat of being deeply in touch with ourselves and attend to how we're being impacted, how we're being affected in these times. So after the Buddha touches the earth, Mara departs and um, the Buddha in the story opens completely into awakening. And um, I think one we can look at this apparent relinquishment of Mara as a kind of fourth challenge to awakening. And it's kind of inviting us to abide in awakening as an attainment. Or we might think, oh, I belong here and this is my seat and make this seat into a kind of a, a nest and a place to hang out and that this peace uh, will last. And we might wanna make it permanent. And it might seem like Mara has been completely defeated. But even though Mara has disappeared, Mara is actually still present. Um, silently tempting us to try and take possession of the seat of awakening. So the way we take care of awakening is we let it go. The way we take care of any release, relief and peace in our practice is we let it go. And there's no abiding on the seat of awakening. Um, the practice of awakening, connection, love, and being ourselves is always dynamic. We endlessly find our place, open awakening, and go beyond that. So um, sometimes this touching the earth mudra, a uh, hand position, is also called the defeat of Mara hand position, mudra. Um, but in the stories of the Buddha, um, Mara continues to visit the Buddha for the rest of his life at all sorts of critical junctures. So on the cosmological level, Buddha does not utterly vanquish Mara. They kind of, they interact throughout the Buddha's whole life. And then like on an existential level, life does not overcome death. They're always intimate and inseparable. And likewise, Nirvana does not overcome samsara. Nagarjuna says there's not even a tiny bit of samsara apart from Nirvana. And not even a tiny bit of Nirvana apart from samsara. And psychological, or in terms of like an individual mind stream, Awakening does not overcome grasping. They endlessly unfold. It's always dynamic. And it's, you know, it's more like a dance. So we always keep our eyes open for Mara, but not as a, not exactly as an enemy, um, but as the ever unfolding twists and turns of grasping and delusion. Um, you know, in these, in the, in, in all the stories of the Buddha, actually, we don't see Mara living, uh, Buddha living with Mara as an enemy. Um, awakening is 
curious about the ways of Mara. Um, through practice, you know, we come to know Mara more and more deeply. And the creativity and vigor and energy of Mara intimately turns with and reflects and becomes the life energy and diamondism of awakening. And I thought about this in terms of like, in, in, in like baseball, that like a great pitcher can only fully express their capacity if they face a great hitter. And likewise, a great hitter can only actualize their, their real potential if they face a great pitcher. So our deepest potential as um, vessels of the way is only fully actualized through meeting profound challenges. So there's a, a saying, the greater the mud, the bigger the Buddha. And I have a, I have a show and tell item here. Um, it's a watercolor painting by Dojin Sarah. And she made this for my birthday, which was one week ago. There it is. So it's Mara. It's Mara is kind of a demon. Um, it's Mara intimately seeing a great big heart. So right here in our lives, uh, we face challenges to completely being ourselves, to actualizing awakening, to fully loving, to meaningful participation in the world. Um, we're always in the fray. And um, in the spirit, I offer this con of Mara. Thank you.